our scripture reading for this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 4 through 20. If I were to read all of that directly from the Bible, we would be here for a long time. And so I am going to be paraphrasing sections of this reading along with reading some of the direct text. We begin in ancient Israel with a woman named Hannah who suffered greatly because she could not give birth. Her husband loved her dearly and gave her more attention than he did his other wife. And this disparity created animosity between the two women. As we read in verse 6, Hannah's rival used to provoke her severely, to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, said to her, Hannah, why, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? At this point, Hannah leaves to pray in the temple in her distress. She tells God that she is miserable. She asks God to remember her and to bless her with a child. She makes a binding vow to dedicate her son to the service of God. She said this so quietly that no sound could be heard. She barely even moved her lips. The sight seemed so strange to the priest, Eli, that he accused Hannah of being drunk. Hannah replies in verse 15, No, my Lord, I am a woman deeply troubled. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your service as a worth your servant as a worthless woman, for I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation all this time. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. May the God of Israel grant the petition you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your sight. Then the woman went to her quarters, ate and drank with her husband, and her countenance was no longer sad. The chapter concludes with announcements of Hannah's pregnancy and the birth of her son, whom we know as Samuel, who would become a great priest and play a critical role in the life of King David and all the people of Israel. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Kathy, for reading the scripture this morning. Beloved, I am so sad 
because I'm not with you in person this morning. But I'm grateful for the technology that allows me to share with you in this way. So first, a little bit about why I'm not with you in person. On Friday afternoon, our oldest daughter, Natalie, who is in the first grade, was sent home early from school. She has been identified as being in close contact with a classmate who subsequently tested positive for COVID-19. We have tested Natalie and we are awaiting those results. Per the school's protocol, she will be engaged in remote learning for most of the coming week. After talking with my husband, Jason, and also with our board members and the staff, we decided as a group that it would be best for me to be present with my family and to remain away from the building in Morningstar while other people are in it, just to be extra cautious, but also to give Natalie the emotional support that she needs right now as she is navigating this confusing situation. So thank you. Thank you for supporting my family in this way. And thank you for continuing to be mindful of the situation in which we're all living right now, as we have to make choices day by day regarding our own needs and the needs of our community. So back to the passage at hand, back to our scripture from 1 Samuel. I'm grateful for Kathy and for her willingness to read the passage. And as we move in to consider what it could mean for us today, I invite you to take a deep breath with me. And let us pray. Gracious and loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together be pleasing in your sight this morning, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Many weeks ago now, I shared some stories about my relationship with my sister. She is the second in the lineup of siblings. We have two younger brothers who are six and seven years younger than I. You can imagine that as we were growing up, our sibling rivalry often fell along gender-specific lines. It was the boys versus the girls almost every time. And these teams, of course, had different strategies. The boys were a bit more overt in their plays. They were more destructive. They would knock over a block tower. They would pull our hair. They would steal our, toy, our toys. But the girls, we were older. We were more methodical. We preferred instead to mess with their minds. We told them stories that would keep them up at night. We rearranged things in their bedrooms. We put pieces of garlic in their pillowcases before bedtime. Our most devious plan centered on a game of Super Mario Brothers. This was the 1990s, so we are talking about classic Nintendo here. You may remember these guys. All four of us really enjoyed playing this game, which of course was a two-player game, so we would fight over whose turn it was to play. When my sister and I became frustrated at the amount of time that the boys had spent playing the game, we chose not to complain or to wrestle the controllers from their hands. Instead, we waited. We sat in the shadows and we waited. 
We waited for our mother to call our brothers to ask them to take out the trash or wash their dishes or put away their laundry. Because in reality, our brothers were really good kids and they did what their parents asked them to do for the most part. So when my mother called their attention to a chore that was left undone, they would simply pause the game. That was a mistake. As soon as they left the room, my sister and I would go to the game, we would resume the play, we would kill the character, and then we would pause it quickly so that you couldn't tell by looking at the screen what had happened. That way, when our brothers resumed their game, what they saw was this. Game over. They were so confused. Now, I'm not proud of these stories. I'm not trying to give you ideas here. Children, if you are paying attention, do not try these things at home. The adults in your life will not approve, and they shouldn't. Because our entire reason for treating our brothers in this way was to provoke them. Yes, we enjoyed their confusion for just a moment, but what we really wanted was a reaction. We wanted recognition for the irritation that we were causing we wanted to get a rise out of them just as they did out of us. And it worked, of course, because we human beings are quite provocable. The truth is we all feel provoked at one time or another, some of us more easily than others. And we often use being provoked as an excuse for poor behavior. So if you're taking notes in the sermon outline that was made available to you online, that's your first answer. We often use being provoked as an excuse for poor behavior. So we read about some poor behavior in our text for today. Hannah was on the receiving side of some of that behavior from the wife, another wife of her husband, who consistently provoked her and teased her because she could not have a baby. There are a couple of things in this situation in 1 Samuel that are worth noting because of the differences in culture. For one, Hannah's husband had more than one wife. This practice was quite typical in those days and in that part of the world, but it seems so foreign to us. And when we read about this kind of a situation in our holy text, the story often highlights the complications of such an arrangement. This is what we have in the rivalry between Hannah and Panina. Almost certainly Panina's mean girl actions toward Hannah were motivated by her own feelings of jealousy and neglect. Panina took those feelings and fueled them in, into her attacks on Hannah, which were quite vicious. Hannah was what they called barren in those days. She could not have a baby. And the fact that she and her husband already knew that means that they had encountered grief and loss to this point. So Panina, who presumably had given birth to many children, exploited that grief and taunted Hannah with it. This was no small thing because Hannah's worth, not in the eyes of her husband, it would seem in this case, but in the eyes of the entire society, were tied to her ability to bear not only children, but sons. So that's the other cultural detail that we need to note here. A woman was considered to be a burden at best. 
and ultimately worthless if she was not married and serving in her father's home or married and bearing sons in her husband's home. So Penina is showing absolutely no mercy in provoking Hannah, most likely because Penina had been provoked herself. That's the way it typically works, isn't it? In the most basic terms, the word provoke means to give rise to a strong reaction or emotion. In our understanding and practical usage, we often add a negative bent to that term. We say to provoke is to incite anger. To provoke is to incite anger. But why would we do such a thing? Why would we try to bring another person to the point of bubbling over in anger? Most often because we are angry too. That's how human emotions tend to work. If we do not process our own pain, we will pass it on to another person. Think about those days when you have encountered harsh words in the workplace or in a friendship Think about how you have snapped later at your spouse or your children or a neighbor. Beloved, I have said it before, and I'm sure I will say it many times in the course of our work with each other, our growth and our service. If we don't allow our pain to be transformed, we will transfer it to another person. This concept is not original to me. It is well documented in human interaction. It's often stated also by medical professionals, mental health professionals, professional counselors, spiritual directors, and clergy members such as myself. Pain that is not transformed will be transferred. In other words, we provoke others when we have been provoked. That's what makes the story of Hannah a truly remarkable one. She was living in misery, reminded daily of her loss and her worthlessness by someone who lived in her household. How easily Hannah could have turned bitter. Hannah instead turns to God. Literally, she seeks the presence of God in the temple and she prays in earnest, not caring what other people saw or what other people thought. Even when she's accused of being drunk, Hannah stays focused not only on her heartache, but on the desires of her heart. And when she reveals to Eli the priest why she has been pouring out her soul to God, Eli bids her peace. And Hannah receives it. She leaves the temple with her soul at rest before any single thing in her circumstance changes. She still had no baby. She still had no status. She was returning to her home where her rival surely would remind her of both of those realities in cruel ways. Beloved, this is the most important part of the story, the way that I read it. After pouring her soul out to God, Hannah comes to a place of inner peace before her circumstance changes. It's a powerful scene. 
The presence of God and the guidance of Eli, they bring Hannah to a place where she can utter in the light of all that she faces and all for which she hopes, let your servant find favor in your sight. Let your servant find favor in your sight. These words sound familiar. We will read familiar words, similar words, professed by another young woman in just three weeks on the second Sunday of Advent, that season of preparation before Christmas, that season of waiting. That's when Mary says to the angel, after she's been told that she will be the mother of the Christ child, here I am, the servant of the Lord, let it be with me according to your will. Let it be. That's how we often abbreviate this profound statement, let it be. These are words of peace. These are words of peace. In the midst of the extraordinary promises of God, Mary reaches a place of peace. We see in our story for today that Hannah, too, when asking for what amounted to be a miracle, professes her trust in God. Hannah had been provoked, in other words, to peace. So remember, in its basic form, the word provoke is not inherently negative. We often use it that way, but it simply means to give rise to a strong emotion or reaction. So positively, we could think it in terms of that popular term, thought-provoking. Well, what is more thought-provoking than peace? In the middle of turmoil. This is the work of God's faithfulness in our lives, beloved. Our God has the power to provoke us to peace in the midst of our great suffering. It's from that place of peace that we can be provoked to other strong, helpful reactions and emotions. We can learn about this in the book of Hebrews in our New Testament when the writer speaks of what it means to live in healthy community in chapter 10. The writer encourages the people of God, people of faith, to consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds. To provoke one another to love and good deeds. Well, when we talk about community in this way, it seems that peace just might be possible. And not only inner peace, but peace among the people. Peace in our relationships with one another. But we know that we can never deal with everything that's going on out there if we don't first deal with what's going on in here. So this is what Hannah models for us. This is what we see in her behavior as she seeks the presence of God and she pours out her soul. Truly, the power of Hannah's soul-pouring prayer should not be underestimated because it speaks to the power of prayer itself. I know I need to be careful here. I in no way want to suggest that God is a, con a cosmic vending machine. Our God is not a cosmic vending machine ready to dispense our wishes if we say the magic word. Certainly God is not Santa Claus keeping a list of who's naughty and who's nice. Or God is not our own personal genie in a bottle beholden to our requests. There's no rubric that tells us if we will pray 
for this many hours in this posture with these particular words that we will get what we want. That's not how prayer works. So how does prayer work? What is the point? What are we doing when we pray? Well, we have many reasons for praying, many personal reasons, and sometimes from our perspective, prayer may feel like a negotiation. There are elements of that feeling when we read Hannah's prayer as she offers to dedicate the son that she has not even conceived yet to the service of God. But prayer is not a bargaining tool, no matter how desperate we may be and no matter what we are willing to do. Prayer is an opportunity for us to be honest with ourselves, to discover and name our feelings, to accept what is, to hope for what could be, to leave room for God to work, to see God at work, to remember that we're not alone, to find peace. Prayer is an opportunity for us to find peace and to practice it, to come to a place where we can say, let it be. That's actually what we say every time that we pray, most of us, because that's what amen means. So be it. Let it be. But do we mean it? Do our prayers, our time with God, do they provoke us to peace? Do we and our time and interactions with each other provoke one another to love and good deeds? This is what it means to be the church, by the way. To notice when we may be provoked to anger, to acknowledge those feelings, to stop and to process our pain so that it goes no further. To instead be provoked to peace and to love and to service. Now, I know that this is really easy to say and not so easy to do because it's countercultural. Well, so was Jesus. So is following Jesus even today. Next Sunday, November 21st, is the last Sunday in the church calendar year. That means that November the 28th is not only the first Sunday in the season of Advent, but the first Sunday in a new year. That means now is a great time to consider our intentions for the next 365 days of life. Now this could be really disorienting because it's not even Thanksgiving yet and now I'm talking to you about New Year's resolutions. But not exactly. Pursuing peace does take resolve for sure, but it's more than a resolution. What I'm talking about here is a revolution. A revolution is a fundamental change. And I'm talking about a fundamental change in how we respond to being provoked. Others may try to provoke us to anger, and they may be clumsy about it as they stumble around in their own discomfort. Or they may be more methodical, allowing their pain to fester as they wait in the shadows, plodding away to say, game over, when we are not looking. Either way, beloved, we do not have to play that game. We don't have to play that game. Not today, not any day. Not even when we are at our worst. 
we can instead acknowledge the pain that is being stirred up within us, name it, and pour out our souls to God as we seek peace instead. This practice is a game changer. This practice is a game changer, and it does take practice. It takes practice, especially when we feel strong emotions rising up within us. It takes practice to acknowledge our pain, to name what is going on with us, to pour out our souls, and to seek peace. It's not easy on any level, but this practice fueled by the presence of God and the love of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, it is more powerful than any expression of anger. It changes the whole scene, the whole objective. It reminds us that our goal is to point people to the grace of God that we find in Jesus. So as we move into the holiday season with a variety of social and family commitments, and dynamics and unresolved conflicts, I cannot think of a more important reminder. As followers of Jesus here at Morningstar, our mission is to point people to the grace of God that we find in Jesus. We cannot do that effectively if we have been provoked to anger. There's just no way. Anger does not point people to God's grace. It only points to more anger more division, more destruction. If we want to point people to God's grace, then we must allow that grace to work in us. Yes, we have to acknowledge our anger. We have to process it. We have to allow God's grace to provoke us to move beyond that anger, to love and to good deeds. In other words, beloved, it's time to be provoked to peace. Amen? Amen. Let it be.